0: Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson
1: and I'm William Pauhaida.
0: Today on the show, we're going to be looking at how social distancing is affecting the art industry. Uh, So we've invited two guests to speak to us remotely. Everybody is talking via Zoom, as is uh, the new way of life. I think Zoom is probably the one uh, one of one of the tech companies that's doing very well out of everyone in this crisis. We have Jonathan Schwartz here from uh, the Art Logistics Company, Atelier Four, and Magda Swanon of Postmasters Gallery. So Magda will be talking about how the larger galleries um, are able to, uh, or she's gonna be talking about her gallery and how it's been impacted, um, and also how the, the larger galleries are able to because they have a little bit more money launch these special viewing rooms and potentially sell more material. I don't actually know if that's what's going on. So, you know, hopefully you'll be able to give some insight on that. And Jonathan, you're going to give us some insight on the uh, art uh, shipping industry um, and tell us how things are going uh, there. And I think probably, uh, I think overall, uh, nobody's doing that great. I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but that's the way it sort of seems. So uh, I, I would start uh, from there. William, I believe you have uh, a few questions and framings just to get us started.
1: Well, yeah. First, I just want to you know say hello to Jonathan and Magda and welcome them onto the podcast. And um, you know, my first question is just how how are you dealing with social distancing personally uh, in your own lives before we get into the the industry side of things?
2: Uh, this is Jonathan from Atelier 4. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm sequestered with my uh, wife about 36 miles north of my office. Uh, and we're trying to keep to ourselves as much as possible. It's pretty rural where we live, so it's not hard. Um, and we're trying to limit exposure to, uh, to people who are more at risk. For instance, my wife's father is living in Queens right now and, uh, we kind of leave a package for him outside the door and then step back and he grabs it and talk for a little bit and that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aside from that, I do have plans to go to the office tomorrow. We're having another emergency meeting. We'll all be keeping a minimum of two meters apart. Gotcha. And Magda, how how are you
1: guys dealing with it?
3: Well, it's not that easy. We are, you know, in great proximity to the gallery. So I can walk over to the office or I can bring office to home. And um, we are incredibly used to working online. So there is some degree of... uh, of adaptation that is possibly easier than to many other people. I mentioned many times my social skills are very low. The amount of this operation success is truly not based on my social skills. So, uh, you know, we go out to to grab food when necessary and walk the dog. We are in the epicenter, basically. We are in Tribeca.
1: that is um yeah what does it look like in lower manhattan i haven't really seen too many images myself i've been sort of staying away it's
3: super empty it's uh i i think we unfortunately fall into the uh, protected group of old folks because Mm -hmm. we are over 60. i have to admit that i'm sorry (laughs) but um So we try to, you know, not go into a crowded situations like stores, but the stores here are very adapted. Um, Thankfully on some level, uh, uh, New York City established uh, liquor stores as essential. So the one on the corner is open and I think they are raking it in. Uh, Yeah. And which is not the case of our artist, Serkanovskaya, whose show is here. He uh, flew to Toronto seconds before his opening, and uh, alcohol is not an essential business in Canada. So, Oh,
1: wow. It's still bad for the Canadian uh, right? Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. So,
0: I think we can call- bend where you are. My parents are located in um, Guelph, and they. Uh, they stocked up on a bunch of alcohol recently. Um, I, think, I think because they were concerned uh, that the borders were being shut down and they wouldn't right. be able to get like Argentinian wine. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, to each
2: so they their could run. drink some of that Canadian ice wine. Yes.
3: <laughs> My dog needs to go there because uh, they have certain dog cookies in this store. So, yeah, but other than that, it's particularly empty. We all know that we are across Broadway, but the majority and the core of Tribeca is probably one of the richest zip codes in the country and also the least populated. And that's accelerated by the fact that enormous amount of people from here left to the country. So it really is pretty desolate. That I have to say.
1: Well, and so Patty, how have you been dealing with it? I know you have your office is generally down in Dumbo and you live out in Queens, so.
0: Yeah, so uh, before the um, shelter in place or whatever they're they calling it now um, was put into effect. I spent a week walking back and forth from Queens to my office in Dumbo. So that was 14 miles a day. Um, I think that any weight that I lost doing that is being picked up now because I'm stuck in my house. My office is my bedroom uh, and my boyfriend has just been stress cooking the whole time. So I personally have never eaten as better as well as, as I have now, which is quite nice. And we just got a case of wine. So I've also, I can't say that this is an incredibly healthy time <laughs> for me. Um, but it's uh you know it, it's also um, people are very careful here uh it's um, there are uh, where where I'm located uh there's an, a large number of immigrants um so there's people from all different um, backgrounds cultural backgrounds um and a lot of families so people here seem to be taking it very seriously and um but you know, when I walked through Williamsburg, I guess last week, I had a choice between walking through the hipster neighborhoods, which nobody seemed to be taking it too seriously then, or the Hasidic neighborhoods. And they were like still using the synagogues. So that felt like about as safe as like taking the subway to work. So
3: don't you think that phenomenon kind of has a date stamp of? Last week, because I think right now people that were in serious are in fact serious.
1: Well,
0: well, yeah. Now, now, oh, every day it's like every day you wake up to the sound of ambulances. We live very yeah. close to Elmhurst Hospital, so we can Uh-oh. see it from our that's, window.
2: That's that's rough. I've I've gotten a lot of reports about what's going on in Elmhurst Hospital. Not good.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. So they, the Times had a big story about how uh, 13 people died at the, the hospital and they didn't have a place to put them. So they're just sitting, the corpses were just sitting outside in a, you know, a corpse vehicle or something like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just chose not to watch the video because I thought, you know, this is not going to help my <laughs> men, you know, mental state. A little Uh,
2: footnote on that, Uh, FedEx Custom Critical, who uh, provides some logistics for the art world because they have climate control vehicles and these retired people who are drivers. And uh, it's it's a a weird infrastructure, but it it seems to work pretty well for short distances. They called us to let us know that only their straight trucks were available as all of their tractor trailers have been commandeered by the government to move corpses.
0: Oh, wow. This is
1: actually really terrifying for me just in the sense that you know I it's I don't want to make light of it, but this is like the 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 scenario at the beginning of like every zombie movie. Suddenly you have just corpses in tractor trailer trucks. I mean it's just it it's so unreal it's hard to actually think about what that would look like, you know. Well, I, 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 reality
3: I, not penetrate.
1: Yeah it yes. yeah it's not settling in and I I wish I could say that I think people are taking it really seriously. Um, I've been, my wife and I moved to Ridgewood. So we have a small apartment out in Ridgewood and basically we've been in isolation for the last three weeks and we only go out to go to the grocery store, which is probably the kind of scariest trip right now into the world. Um, but when I, I bike over to studio and, uh, for the last week or so I've been taking a, a walk with, um, the artist Jules de Balancourt in the park, we stand, you know, six feet away from each other. But as we're walking through the park, we're watching groups of people play handball, you know, yeah. two days ago, without gloves. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you know, I don't wanna be that guy who's gonna to try to police somebody's behavior, but it just, that seems incredibly irresponsible. You know, especially when
2: you're you're going to likely wipe the sweat off of your face with your ungloved hand. Absolutely. Moments after touching the ball that somebody else just touched. Yeah.
1: So, pick up basketball games, seeing that kind of stuff still happening um, just is I I don't know if people have gotten to that point where they're really taking it seriously. Because, you know, people probably haven't heard that FedEx is moving their track, their trailers, you know, to store corpses. Um, So when those images hit society, you know, then I think people. Will take it more seriously, but at that point, it seems to be it's going to be a little bit too late.
0: I uh, would say that the four of us are probably all fairly heavy media con- consumers too. Like we've seen the um, the stories from doctors, from people who've got it and, re- and recovered, from people who've lost their friends on Twitter and Facebook and all the different uh, you know social media. Uh, platforms where these stories get told. So, um, you know, I think uh, one of the stories that uh, has been circulating recently has been Kara Over, who got uh, a very bad case in Baltimore. She runs Be More magazine and she wrote about her experience. And it sounds terrifying, you know, because you basically have to be dying before you get a test and are admitted to the hospital. So,
2: right, and uh to Williams' comment about zombie apocalypses i mean i I saw um uh George Romero's film when I was six years old in nineteen sixty nine I don't know how i I was shown that film, but I wake up every morning and the grid's still on, you know the the electricity's still on, so every morning I wake up, I keep on expecting it to go down, and i I'm like, oh, it's a good day, we have power, so this is a weird one, you know it's not like uh um, a blackout or a brownout. It's something much deeper and much harsher, yet we have these creature comforts. Right, yeah. It's, you know, know, the scale is very interesting.
1: When I saw people stocking up on water, I was like, wait, the water supply is yeah. going to shut down? This isn't that kind yeah. of disaster. But people, you know, just kind of go into the default mode of what they know or what they think they should be preparing for. And this is really mm.
2: Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. A friend of mine owns Five Acre Farm. So Dan Horan of Five Acre Farm wrote on LinkedIn that uh, it's not a problem of supplying the grocery stores. There's plenty of uh, production going on. The problem is, is that the logistics of getting the food there was never built for a constant run on the markets. So if people started buying like they normally buy reasonable amounts, then the uh, shelves will be stocked again.
0: So I think this uh, you know, maybe is a good way to seg- segue into how the uh, COVID crisis is affecting all of our individual businesses. Um, so from, uh, I guess, a sales point of view, um, Magda, what's going on um, in terms of buying? Uh,
3: very little, uh, I think. Um... We had a really lucky situation where one of the large, large transactions for the gallery fit into this window when Hong Kong was waking up into being semi, you know, normal place. And we have not yet uh, collapsed here in the US. So I managed to produce and actually even ship uh, the artwork from New York to Hong Kong. And that allowed us for some sort of, um, you know, cushion for, I would say, maybe two months for me to, to keep it going with all staff and, um, and built. So there is kind of a luxury of thought to this that uh, you know we have discussion at the same time nobody knows whether discussion is uh, sufficient and you know two months is very little time and current transactions minimal i i would say very very small we had a long uh, discussion with one of the uh, public museums in France, the committee went through, something will happen with that. and But everything seems to be on hold. That's my impression, which um, I, I can't imagine is not shared by a majority of galleries that n- are not in this kind of super, overfunded mega level where you know the the transactional part is still
4: happening well i mean it's it it makes a really interesting point uh you bring up a really interesting point that the fact that you know so much of the market activity for galleries is not based on the, the people coming into the gallery generally it's literally a few important collectors and you know museum acquisition committees so the social distancing, I, you know, it's not gonna, I don't know how it impacts um, galleries, you know, I, I guess in the sense that you don't necessarily need the public coming in to
2: still make the sales. Well, if, you be, if UBS can be trusted, their market report uh, a year ago or so talked about the fact that 57% of sales overall was happening from the physical brick and mortar gallery, which means the rest of them were either at art fairs or virtual. But of course, the problem is, is that when somebody buys the artwork and they, wants to rec- they want to receive it, then you've got to put it on a truck. And those services are suspended right now, at least legally.
4: Yeah. Jonathan, can you tell us how, how the social distancing and the pandemic is affecting your, your operation at Atelier
2: 4? Well, we're, we're following the guidelines of uh, non-essential businesses both on legal and ethical grounds, because I do believe that the so-called flattening of the curve is, is a necessary step. Unless we have something that tells us there's a better way forward, this is what we're doing. But um, towards the uh, just before the lockdown, um, an artist who we've done a lot of work for uh, put us in touch with her dealer overseas and was trying to get the work sent there as soon as possible Uh, before things started shutting down. The problem is, is that she herself had to let a bunch of her assistants go because, well, some of them needed to go back to their families. These are mostly younger, you know, art students. And uh, and she had no one to help her finish the work. So we actually sent art handlers to her studio to make the actual work with her, which I think it might be a first for my company. Um, But we got it done in 24 hours. We brought all the artwork back to our warehouse. And then the following week, we were gonna come in to crate everything, send it to the airport and fly it uh, to its destination. Um, and then that weekend, we got the call, you know, it was moving from 50 to 75 to 100% quarantine, uh, you know, of, of you know, reducing the number of, of people at the office. And we can't have people working, making crates in close proximity to each other and comply with this. And actually we can't do it anyway because we're not really an essential business. Um, so the, uh, we, we, we informed the, uh, the artist dealer of this and the artist was understanding, but the dealer started contacting us saying, I have other shipments happening. There are other companies who are moving the work. Um, and I was wondering who they were. I found out, uh, of the three other companies that she was working with, one of them has a very small art handling presence, but they do a lot of, uh, um, value transport they they move currency they move uh species and and gold and things like that so they're considered an essential business the other two absolutely not and she says that they're a hundred percent in uh working uh out on the streets and uh this you know i was disgusted by this and the only reason we release the artwork because we do have a skeleton crew at the warehouse to make sure that the climate control is functioning um we released the work to the artist because she said it represented her entire revenue for the year. And I felt terrible about it. So we released it. But, you know, this this is disgusting. This is people not taking this thing seriously. But anyway, how we're dealing with uh, social distancing is that I've got a couple of people in the warehouse who stay distant from each other, not so much to affect, infect one another, but maybe to bring that infection home to whomever they're living with or whomever they're caring for.
0: Um, so that seems uh, those are stories that I was not aware of um, from the logistics end because you don't really uh, hear that much about about that. Um, you know when I, I keep wondering like uh, so last week I wrote a story on artsy um, and uh, I think one of the things that had come up um, was that uh, a lot of galleries feel like they they need more revenue. so, Artsy and their buy now buttons and that sort of thing are, are a little bit more appealing, and of course, Artsy is is reporting that their uh, their their site has more traffic. Um, but once uh, an artwork is um, purchased, like, is there a particular size at which like you can't ship? Like who? Like what is shippable at this okay. point? Okay.
2: Okay. So right now. Um there are uh cargo planes coming in and out um, because the su- supply chain uh is partially essential so uh there are still shipments coming in and out of the airports but if we're talking about moving artwork uh you could put it on an airplane, but then getting it to the consumer in almost you know in, in any of the big cities in in this country right now is um is really not and there's a loophole in the way it's written in Florida but Uh, what I mean by a loophole is that it talks about what essential industries are and then uh, subsequent paragraphs talk about mail, delivery, and logistics is essential. But the way one should really read that is that it's essential to the industries that are mentioned in the paragraphs before it. So uh, if if we all take this loophole, there's going to be thousands of more people out on the street and then flattening this curve is just not going to happen. So what's, what are you able to move? Well, um, there's, there's very little we can do. In our warehouses, we have uh, a minimum of one and one backup person. So you know two people at the warehouse at any given time. Tomorrow, we'll have slightly more because we have to run payroll, do things like that that we, we're, we can't do for security reasons remotely. We're looking into changing that, but uh, our controller lives uh, like a 10-minute walk from the warehouse, so it's not a big dealer not a big deal, but um, we have been asked by certain uh, clients to allow, let's say a conservator to come into our warehouse to look at an artwork that will set up in the viewing room. We've got one happening uh, Tuesday in the Miami warehouse and uh, we gave them guidelines as to what to expect when they come to the door. We buzz them in, they walk in, we're trying to keep distance from everyone. Uh, The work is set up in, in the viewing room. And if they need, Things picked up and moved around then uh, they need to move away from us and then we come in and we move the work so they can see it I mean it's it's very inefficient Uh, it's certainly not a a solution for this long term because it'll just drive up the prices of everything by how long it takes so uh, really it's dysfunctional so a cure has got to come or this this part of the industry will not come back
0: okay so that's uh sobering um uh william are you still with us
4: i am can you hear me yes okay uh well, I, I may get I, muted from time to time
0: okay got it that's what's happening sorry magda you were gonna say something well the i i was
3: Trying to figure out, uh, you know, my business is twofold. One is, uh, you know, physical, actual art in place to be seen locally, and the other part is, uh, is online to be promoted through any possible ways of social media and such, and to be put on the selling platforms and uh, those are two components of course at this moment the original component of having a show and i do have a show with two shows which actually got frozen in space right on the march 14th, when uh, i think that the the, um, the kind of rules were tightening and both of these shows are here and we are attempting to, uh, you know, deliver them in some form to the audience. Uh, obviously, digitally. I had maybe two visits from press to see them, but uh, you know, the activity online did not stop in terms of. Um, outreach and promotion and attempting uh, all that to be transactional. But I think this is the point when people on the other end, the people that buy art are still in this state of shock where you know this is not the first thing on, on their mind we all know about you know healing and intellectual and you know aesthetic value that is brought through an art object or art piece but uh i think when it's uh, in, you know when on the spectrum of your engagement at the moment you have you know loss of business loss of uh, loved ones and um, and high hardship. Uh, I I don't think art acquisition is there. So it's not the moment to uh, to kind of be extremely predictive. But everybody on every level is attempting to somehow put out the goods, so to speak um and that's where my big issue comes because the goods and how we present it is incredibly dependent on the level of a experience and b resources Mm. you have you know you have a place like ours that has huge privilege of actually operating online and within media for a long time and uh, you know this expertise source quote-unquote expertise is used to uh, for our benefit uh but we have no resources you know i i get emails from hauser and Wirth, and there is uh there is like three pages of content and links that at this point frankly give me headache because it's way too much to put out at this point and i think we just should kind of chill a little bit more than have hundreds and hundreds of viewing rooms and interviews with artists and and i think it should be um, and then having artists do things uh, without them being paid because paid because it's art. So you know, take over my Instagram. Phenomen- I think I
2: saw. I think I saw a meme not long ago that talked about uh, all of these online viewing rooms, and I think it said online viewing rooms are really just a website.
3: Yeah, and it's
0: yeah. like <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. They I are like a, website, they it's like- a website, and they like probable for the most part i actually as a homework did uh did go through enormous amount of them yesterday and i think you know like i said it's technology and those rooms are in service on of content and even if the presentation is great the the and the artwork is sort of not so good the room is shipped that's basically it and um, I I just think we should slow it down and also think about enormous amount of art that is not a merchandise that is in the this realm of an experience and an effort to present something and how to translate that experience online and, you know, there is a viewing room of Doug Wheeler at Turner's site that looks like, I don't know, a PBS story, <laughs> The Inquirer.
0: <laughs> I saw that yesterday oh. too. <laughs> and no.
2: Is that from everybody the former?
3: in this room probably saw Doug Wheeler's installation and this conveys nothing, absolutely nothing about what this work is and what kind of experience you can have.
2: Was that spearheaded by by the former artsy employee who went to Zwerner to do their online presence? Yeah, and what's her name? Elena.
3: Yeah, and you know she's perfectly fine doing her things, but uh, but I think uh, you know the the kind of heavy handedness of this uh, this viewing room pushes from the top has has a problem because it's basically you know big brands selling big brands to big people yep that's the reality
2: the you big know, box
3: the does albert ellen viewing room and they sell it for millions of dollars it's it's pretty likely they would sell it anyway given the spectrum of people that are there uh that you know trust the brand or trust both brands so to speak so it's interesting for me that within this kind of absolute domination of presenting stuff online from the very top what i fear is that you actual interesting things from places that don't have this level of resources are just gonna be hurt and disappear even further than when we were talking earlier before the pandemic strike that, you know, the middle and the bottom is falling out. And this is only accelerating that.
4: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in here for a second to talk about how this is, you know, sort of impacted what I'm doing as an artist. Um, And I think one of the things that I keep hearing from other artists that I'm talking with online is that, you know, this isn't a huge lifestyle change for any of us. Um, We're used to socially distancing ourselves in our studios and working for prolonged periods of time. Um, Most of us have been in a precarious situation before the pandemic hit. Um, We're well aware that, you know, there's the physical and social component to having openings and gallery shows, but at the same time, we know that the people that are buying our artwork are very wealthy and we often don't even meet them. Um, and that, you know, there's, there's the kind of um, sense that, you know, right now, this, this isn't a huge change uh, for a lot of us. Um, and I would also just say that, you know, at this point, we know things haven't exactly been very good with the art business for a long time. We know that there's been this kind of consolidation at the top whether it's Pace Gallery snapping up artists or, you know, a couple uh, couple of months ago before this all hit, you know, there was a a day where like Hauser and Wirth announced that they were representing like three artists, you know, um, in one day. And so, you know, that this stuff has all been sort of going on leading up to uh, the the quarantining and the pandemic. Um, And so, you know, I, I do think that as we move forward with the conversation, sort of, talking about how the pandemic is sort of what it's made visible about the art economy and how it works and who it's really impacting in terms of employees, because I I, I I never thought there was any urgency to art sales. You know, it often takes months to get paid. It takes months to complete the transaction. The shows are up for six weeks often before anything is even moved out. So there is this kind of built-in delay to the art world. Um, and at the same time, just, you know, personally, for me, um, I've been working on an exhibition for the Aldrich that was supposed to open in June. And that's been pushed back to September. And the show is called 2020. And it was a, a show that's about the kind of uh, the primary, the election, this kind of political, uh, what's happening in the world. And now that's really been pushed back. And that's not a huge financial impact on me. It, you know, I think there was a $1,000 uh, stipend for the show. Um, but, you know, my, my wife. I uh, got a residency that she was hoping to do in May, and that certainly will be pushed back. Um, I know a lot of people are losing access to things that they were sort of planning on, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm not sure too many artists are really losing income yet from sales, just because most of us don't sell a whole lot of art, you know, and I, I think it points out that our system, unlike Europe or Germany, uh, is, is so tied to market activity that you know I I guess I guess I'm not sure you know how this is going to impact me just because I haven't been making that many sales for a while so it's you know this this is still sort of like business as usual for me unfortunately right
0: do you you think that it would affect your um, like your ability to do freelance work because I feel like a lot of artists are uh, rely on um, various forms of freelancing, like, um, and that's the the same for writers too. You know, you, you, um, there there are writers who only uh, write freelance articles for different magazines, but there are also writers who piece it together and i i would be more in this category I do some teaching i do some writing i do some consulting i do all these things and uh certainly on my end those uh, those things have been all all avenues have been impacted
2: i think that the yeah. um that the, that the uh art world that has uh, of today or of you know a couple of months ago was built on uh a, a high end a high net worth uh, participant that really came about in the mid to late 80s, and then started to uh, energize uh, the ecosystem so that there were so many of the, there was so such a huge part of like, uh, of, of the workers in the art world that are part of this gig economy. And um, as uh, the economy uh, polarizes more and more, which this will unfortunately ramp that up, the the deterioration of a middle class, uh, is, is more and more certain. I'm sorry to be a doomsday person, but it's going to be really hard if the super wealthy people don't consume and don't have the same habits of discretionary spending that they normally do because everyone else is going to have to find a different line of work. Uh, 15 years ago, there were, there were not that many companies that do what I do. Now it's, you could spitball blindfolded in New York and well, used to, and and hit an art handler. And, uh, you know, for those of us who have uh, an art storage business, think of us as sort of like a bank, you know, or a vault. And we're housing valuable objects, uh, tangible assets for wealthy people. And if they decide that uh, we are now um, not such a priority to pay, then we've got absolutely no revenue stream at all. So this is potentially catastrophic for the entire... Art logistics field.
4: Well, I mean, what was it? What your response to, to that be, Jonathan? I mean, just taking their artwork and throwing it out in the street, or are they going to get it back? I mean, you have their property, and it would seem that storing art would be a kind of lucrative business right now. You know, it doesn't need to go anywhere, and it was already in yeah, storage
2: anyway. As long as they pay the bill. I mean there there is well, a there is a very large there is a very large uh, art shipping company uh that used to be of moderate size and then they were part of a, a massive uh, consolidation by an outside industry and uh before that consolidation they were in a uh, dire financial shape because they did the art art storage stuff so well that they decided to expand their um their operations uh double triple quadrupling it and uh, the problem they found was that they already had a lot of the a clients. But in order to fill their new warehouses, they had to pretty much take anyone who would who would come by, and so they ended up storing for a lot of people who were illiquid, and then they had cash flow problems. And this sort of thing mm-hmm. can happen as well. Because we do store for some people that uh, will probably make it through this uh, next year or two without much trouble, and I, I hope to count on them for uh, for them to keep us whole, but. Um, that's just 25% of my business. You know, the other stuff is all made up from uh, art installation, uh, interstate trucking, local trucking, import, export, air freight. That stuff is pretty much dead right now. Right. So, yeah, but this is um, a
3: hard time to make those predictions because we really don't have data.
2: But we do need to prepare for the worst, the thing, right?
3: We need to prepare for the worst. like. Yeah you know, the whole infrastructure of the gig economy and the art world collapsed. My son yes. is an mm-hmm. art installer. He works for a very high-end gallery and for a museum. Both of these jobs collapsed. The museum is paying nothing. The high-end gallery, in fact, did pay, uh, did promise to pay for, uh, you know, what whatever they call it, like the confirmed future jobs. So. Oh, you mean
2: so fur- furloughed so his job is waiting when they come back
3: basically yes but how they are gonna come back you know it's right i mean easy. how they gonna come back and how they they gonna survive this interim period and how long is it and that's well, maybe maybe far- mark
2: spiegler maybe mark spiegler knows because you know they announced that the uh Art Basel is going to resume in September. Do they know something that we don't?
3: I think it's a joke. I think the first thing that is going to go down, honestly, is the art fairs because they uh, they they built on incredible amount of social gathering.
2: Yes. So and, and also, they, I hope they go away. They cost way too much money for. Ninety percent of the dealers who go yeah, there, and course. also the art shippers who serve it, because there's too many of us. It's a competitive recession.
3: Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a problematic venture for a majority of the galleries that participate because it's another cream of the top situation, uh, who 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 comes up uh, in like a large profit sector after the art fair and. And uh, you know, and everybody underneath is uh, is suffering. I don't do art fairs anymore because uh, partially ethically and partially because I have no math for them. There is just nothing that I can gain from it. The type of work we have, art fairs are like so merchandise based that it's it's. Um, you know, you can't show media there, you can't show time-based work there. It, it just, is not conducive to the type of work that I support and I'm interested in because of, you know, how valid I think it is in, in a large scheme of cultural production of the moment. So, that's you know, a,
2: that's a, that's a very ele- That's a very elegant way of saying that it always was and always will be a trade show.
4: Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yeah. and I, you know, my feeling is that it's the the art fairs are going to be very hard to kill. You know, I could imagine them coming back in September, there's going to be a glut of them, you have art fairs that were delayed, you're going to have sort of overlapping Armory and Basel all happening in the fall. Uh, And there may be less galleries participating. But this, you know, when the financial crisis hit in 2008, there was a kind of hiccup, you know that year at Basel but the wealthy were still really very wealthy at the end of the day and unless the stock market completely collapses or our whole social structure falls apart my feeling is it'll still be there there just probably won't be as many galleries left um, to kind of participate yeah
2: it'll accelerate that uh prediction that i once made to patty i think was that in five or six years if the art fairs don't change their model there's only gonna be about 12 or 15 galleries there and the booths will be much larger. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Um,
4: So, you know, I think there's a lot here that we can um, try to kind of come back to, particularly around the viewing rooms and this idea of kind of um, branding. Um, But I'm just kind of curious, what are your immediate concerns um, right now for your businesses? you know and Patty, you can talk about this too with freelance writing and also our teaching schedules which have really just shifted to online learning um
0: yes yeah, so, so, you know yeah so i think from that end of the industry um i know that a lot of uh, publications are already have are already in the process of or are have cut their uh freelance uh budget entirely so artnet um is on that list. I don't know what else yet, um, but those cuts are coming. Um, and that's, I think, sort of inevitable. If there are people that can't place ads anymore, which is almost everyone, then obviously uh, the publications are gonna have trouble um, and freelance writers are kind of the first to go on that boat. Um, in the On the teaching front, one of the things that's happened is that everything has moved online and if you're an adjunct teacher like me uh i'm very grateful uh, that i still have a job um but two i you know i don't know how long that's gonna like once the summer comes you know i don't know how long that's gonna last but two one of the things that uh i feel is um a burden that i um am not necessarily appreciative of is that um we now have to move all of our uh, online, uh, all of our courses online, and for my particular courses, this is not necessarily a massive amount of work. For some people, it really is, um, but it is a massive amount of communications because everybody at the department needs to hear how you're doing. Like every, like you have to spend so much time in meetings now. Um, and that, I, and you also have to get the students accustomed to like getting on a Zoom meeting. You know, you'd think that everybody, there'd be no excuse now for somebody coming in late, but for whatever reason, like now my classes don't start till like half an hour after they've started. Um, and, you know, I think that's like partially because, you know, everybody's really freaked out. So, um, you know, I think that's like, A whole other conversation. That's um, yeah, yeah. I I
4: agree.
1: Managing,
0: um, you know, uh, sort of emotions and um, you know class dynamics and that sort of thing. But the upshot is, is that on the one hand, while I still have work, um, work that was underpaid to begin with has now ballooned, um, and that is its own kind of cost
4: that is not being accounted for. Yeah, I, we could do a whole episode on the fact that SFAI, you know, closed down, um, that, you know, Yale students are demanding a tuition refund, you know, at SBA, we've gone online only and a lot of the students have gone back home, uh, whether that's to China or South Korea or California, um, yep. the grades will just be sort of pass fail, um, kids are feeling, you know, what is the purpose of making sort of art right now? Their thesis shows are feeling a little bit trivial in some cases. And even some of the faculty are just unwilling to, you know, do um, critiques of work that is meant to be seen in person, you know, online. So there's sort of philosophical, uh, ethical questions that have come up. And I think that's gonna be a, a part of a much longer um, conversation, you know, sort of about the kind of systems we have um, to deal with with this right now. Um, and so I don't know, Magda and Jonathan, do you have any other sort of immediate concerns uh, for the gallery or uh, art shipping? For the gallery? Uh
3: until i know when it can physically reopen it is a question for me to decide about the programming because if it's i don't know a few weeks to two months then i would open the door and keep these two shows accessible locally to people that want to see them if it goes longer then quite obviously, uh, we have to adapt to that reality and uh, either start with some other programming for the fall or you know, do completely virtual things. We were, Tomash had this idea that we should have this locked up gallery with uh, you know, one person code to come and see it, but, I don't really know. Mm. My big issue here is that um, I, I have um, I have s- spent a lot of time thinking how to translate something that is in a physical space into virtual, and none of these things. The you know whether it's a JPEG on the phone, whether it's a PDF, whether it's a emailed good picture, whether it's a Viewing room or virtual reality or AR does not account, none of it accounts for anything other than documentation. And mm. we made this little effort here a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, uh, where with the artist and with the show that we have here right now of Serkanoskaya and Joseph Boyce that was frozen right at the opening, we released a three-minute film that is more like a film. It could be categorized as, as as this effort that John Polito maybe would call a variable media, kind of push one thing into the other. Um, so we have this film, and and it got very it it got spectacular uh, viewership, and it got zero traction in press, for example. Hmm where
4: uh,
3: I thought, you know, every, the, the, so I find it very problematic because I think press, if they write about things, they should be looking for inventive solutions or ideas. And what you have is, is to, you know, congratulate David Zwirner that he puts uh, 12 galleries and two pieces each on his viewing room platform, which is a lovely gesture. Or you have a Times article about the Jad piece where Roberta saw it as the last piece that she saw, and that article is illustrated by get this six slides from the exhibition at Gagosian. Front side view, side view, detail, detail. Okay, so that is my problem. That there there has to be an effort to at least somehow address the idea of how you translate
0: an exhibition in space. Yeah. I think it's I mean,
4: That brings can up you a, a, you can know, like... it,
0: Can you um, explain what what you mean by uh, the six slides being a problem sp- specifically? I'm a little unclear. Is it, like, is that, uh, like, what's the issue there? It's not enough. Okay.
3: Yeah. In that it's,
4: a major, that a major you know.
3: 80 feet long artwork, a major feature in a major publication that is illustrated by side slides from a major gallery. I think yeah. that's where resources are. They could send I don't know Tom Powell do a 360, whatever. But this is just not efficient. It's you know. Roberta's words are always beautiful and they will go to the core of the piece. But ex- unless you know it, unless you saw it, these six slides will do shit.
4: Yeah, and this, this brings up a really interesting thing that you know we're sort of talking about, is that there's the idea of translating the content, um, having ways to experience artwork online that's going to be interesting to an audience, And then it's still wrapped around this idea of buying and selling artwork and sort of who the two audiences are. So on on one hand, the internet proposes that, like, everyone could kind of see lots of work. You don't have to just be in New York. Um, There's a kind of public art component to it and how we translate shows for that sort of audience. But they're not the people buying it. And so this whole conversation gets wrapped up with, like, the fact that, yes, David Zwerner has uh, his two kids, Lucas and Marlene, decided that they wanted to invite, you know, 12 galleries out of the hundreds in New York to share David Zwerner's, you know, brand. And, uh, you know, it points that so much of the, the market, the art market, is based on this idea of exclusivity and scarcity. The fact that the New York Times piece about Zwerner doesn't even tell you that. All 12 galleries. It just says 47 Canal, Bridget Donahue, David Lewis, Essex Street, and Queer Thoughts. So it's like the New York Times curated the list of 12 down to just like the coolest, hippest galleries that, you know, are like Zwerner approved. And that's not really going to help all of the, you know, so many galleries don't have access to Zwerner's website. Um, and their employees that are impacted by this. I mean, it's what what I keep coming back to is there's this kind of conflict between the fact that the art world is really built on this exclusivity, really high price points, and the people that buy the art are you know it's a very small number of people. And then we're talking about how do we use the internet, which you know potentially everyone can access if they have broadband, you know, if they have an internet connection and a computer. And these two sort of audiences are are very different in this you know sort of equation um and so i mean it's like trying to adapt the exclusivity of the art world um, for the internet where everyone can kind of see what's happening you know to some degree you know aren't, aren't
2: those aren't those 12 galleries uh c- couldn't you say they're sort of like zwerner's farm team in a way
4: well now I they mean, t- this would seem to be they're kind of zwerner approved let's say i mean i don't know if they're part literally of the farm team but it's just, you know, the, 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 the New York Times article, there's so much about it that's fascinating. It's just like this kind of hero shot of Zwerner looking up into the sky. You know, his, his two kids are like providing the ideas. And, you know, this is like a, a, a culturally progressive version of like the Trump dynamic. And it's just sort of nauseating to see it being sort of posed as this is a, this is a solution. You know, it's like... The online viewing room is a fucking website, you know, that you can look at. And at the yes. same time, you know, it's, it's, it's a very fancy frame that is made to make rich people feel good about buying art. That, like, literally the websites that they have aren't good enough for rich people. You have to jump through five hoops and make something that, like, literally is built for them. Everyone else can kind of trail along and look at it. But it's like the art fair it's made for the buyers, it's a trade show, and other people feel great when they can kind of go and see the work too. And, you know, there's a lot of jobs created by the art fairs. So, you know, I, I I wouldn't want to see art fairs go away if people didn't have jobs, you know, tight, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I we're seeing the real impact of seeing things taken away and so things that i might have been critical of in the art world i'm also worried about the workers you know i feel like we're all the marciano foundation right now you know that place they you know the workers tried to unionize yeah. and they just shut it down
0: yeah totally right. Right. and so yeah. we're well, so
4: it, dependent on the market and philanthropy of rich people that even museums are nervous you know patty well, william two, on two, another two, call two, well,
2: two comments on I, that marciano I, thing i don't want you to lose that marciano thought now there's a difference between somebody of great wealth who is all in and commits to their role uh, in culture, and their collections are usually first rate, and uh, their education program is is key, it's important. Now, Marciano certainly has uh, access to great wealth and to galleries, but, every time i went to that museum to take a look at the work it was not the most spectacular example of those artists and the fact that they rolled up once the union came in shows you what their Mm -hmm. level of commitment to the whole cultural supply chain actually is which was minimal because they were like oh this is too much of a hassle we're out
4: yeah and i mean i i totally understand that at the same time you know sfa i mean um sf moma you know is laying mm-hmm. off staff we're seeing museums that have sizable endowments that should have you know the patron support from committed people um you know are are laying off staff
2: and, okay or, so you know, certainly furl- that,
4: furloughing as well
2: that's so that brings that brings this co- this question that that was just asked to me now i guess i'm the last one to talk about it um mm-hmm. what am i going to do in the face of uh the uncertainty i mean like any other business including a cultural institution in this country, which, by the way, is the exact opposite of France, because in France, all cultural institutions are public, except for just a few of them, like the Musee Luxembourg. Here in the U.S., all museums are private, except for the Smithsonian. All museums and universities, the universities are private, except for the state colleges. So Mm -hmm. uh, they operate very much as businesses, and some of them have uh, great endowments, and some of them actually suffer and they, they struggle with 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 uh money i mean look at the the money woes of the met they're huge so for me staying alive means constantly keeping an eye on our operating capital and what that is because you know as i said before if if our storage clients stop paying us then uh it could end up being just me all alone on a loading dock releasing artwork to our clients and then that's it, it's the end of the story. I hope that doesn't happen. We're trying to be really smart, which is why we had to do some furloughing. There was no avoiding it. We have a skeleton crew. We're constantly the three Ps, planning parameters and permutations because things change all the time. So every day we, we we review it and we say, where do we stand now? What does tomorrow look like? And then there's the return to work. You know, What work will we have to do? uh where can things travel when is this going to be and and who is going to be around to work with at the end of this i i've been talking to some galleries who store with us we store mostly for private collectors and some museums but we do have some gallery clients and they were asking if there was some way that we could uh maybe give them a couple of months free rent (laughs) and i said well At the end of this, there will be galleries who will stay in business and there will be galleries who don't. And there will be fine art shipping companies who stay in business and fine art shipping companies who don't. So we're more than ever partners, more than ever. Uh, And then finally, there's uh, the premature restart of the industry. If I start sending my guys back on the road because the government says, okay, no problem, and then they get ill, then I've got a truck that's going to be grounded. How am I going to have to get drivers to it? There's only so many drivers. There's a, there's a dearth of drivers. There's like 120,000 drivers needed in this country to move stuff before this pandemic. So uh, we're being very careful and we're also going to be ex- as generous as we possibly can with our clientele, because I've always said that there are partners. I don't like the hierarchy of the relationship where, you know, one End of the uh, of the of the contract is is calling all the shots, so partnership is so important right now, and I only want to work with people who understand that because everyone else is gonna they they won't care about us.
0: Right. So I guess I, you know I want to sort of uh, attempt to summarize some of the things that I'm hearing, um, because I think you know when it comes to what is it that we can do. Um, The options do seem a little bit limited, um, and that maybe does not feel all that great. But I think we need to be kind of clear about what, you know, what we what we do have available to us, and like how um, useful it is. And you know, on the one hand, I hear um, the talk about like viewing rooms and. Uh, This sort of thing and to me that just says okay, so we have marketing available to us if you go on the uh, Gagosian website the first thing on their on their website right now is actually their Journal so you can read stuff that they've produced about their their artists because they can't You know, nobody can sell that much. It sounds like uh from a logistics standpoint like it seems like what you have seems like what you're saying to me, Jonathan, is that you're trying to be strategic about the partners that you do have, because if you have good partners, um, then those partners will be, uh, will help you kind of get through this. And that's something that uh, I hear in business and also like in for-profit business and in a, a lot in nonprofit business. Um, this idea that, it, and then I think, also, I think that this kind of trickles down quite a bit. When I was doing some reporting for a piece that'll um, go live next week, one of, uh, one of the people I was talking to who was a disaster expert said that ultimately all disasters are local, meaning that uh, the solutions that we find, the, the, the immediate solutions will be the solutions um, that we find through you know, maybe our neighbors, um, or like the people that we work with closely where we can help each other. Um, and that I think maybe sounds sometimes like a little, uh, I don't know. Hokey. Um, yeah. But it's like, I it's, mean, real.
2: It's, it's real. It's real.
0: Yeah. It's, it's very real. much real. Um, so those are the, I guess those are the things that I'm trying to see. And the one thing I did want to add, even though like it's a tag on to a conversation that I do feel is closed, but the thing about the David Zorner viewing room, the, um, the Doug Wheeler thing, to even look at it, you have to put your email address in. Um, and I feel like that might be the main purpose of that viewing room um, because some <laughs> um, the because I, I just don't see a lot of people spending a lot of time um, on the website itself. But that's like, but again, that's sort of those uh, those sites, like sometimes, um, Magda, you spent a bunch of time looking at these, I'm sure you saw some of these yourself. Like I got a, a mailer from a gallery the other day that was like visit our viewing room and it, it was a link to like a page generated from their like um uh art inventory management system so like they're really just links
3: right uh and there's a purpose to that because like we are on a managing system called art logic and that allows you uh, you know with you know few clicks create what I would definitely not call a viewing room, but a preview of the work that you have available to either look as an audience, as a critic, or to look with the idea of potential acquisition. So there, these are tools and I don't think they are wrong. It's just that there, there has to be demythologizing you know, the of them. It's uh, you know, it's just a way of a lot of desperate people trying to figure out the way to bring their material forth. So I do have sympathy for whomever sends things. And for example, I also got an email from Alexander and Bonin and they sent a beautiful video of their exhibition. That you go around the space, there's a person for scale, you zoom in this piece, you zoom in that piece. And the problem with that is that the video is linear, and I don't wanna spend 12 minutes looking at that show. So, you know, every single every single format has to be thought out and either accepted or rejected. Uh, as uh, you know appropriate or not so it's it just has to work uh, with the purpose in mind.
4: So I I would just kind of note that on the you know this conversation sort of revolving around public and private um, you know right now where Hoping for like public funding for arts and culture, and it's already caused a kind of debate about whether culture is really sort of essential right now. But the kind of flip side of the David Zwirner viewing room—I don't know if you saw this—but there was um, a thing called the Artist Support Pledge that I think came out of the UK, and oh, if
3: somebody buys,
4: yeah, I'll I'll read the the idea from the art. There's an ArtNet article on it. it. says the idea is simple artists who commit to the pledge will post images of a work that's for sale for no more than 230 US dollars. And each time their sales reach 1,155 US dollars, they promise to buy another artist's work for $230. So essentially it's kind of like a pyramid scheme to support the arts. Um, So I I was curious about it and I went onto Instagram and I looked up the hashtag for Artist Support Pledge, and there are 16,500 posts. Um, I can't speak to the quality of the artwork. You're certainly, you know, welcome to go look at that. But that's an enormous amount of artwork uh, posted in just a, you know, few days. Um, And perhaps, uh, you know, maybe it can work out to some degree. And uh, I haven't seen any statistics on how many people are actually buying that work. But, you know, it, it sort of points to this is a, a, like a kind of crowdsourcing model where people who are struggling, who might not have more than like $500 on hand are trying to like support themselves. And it's a very different audience. It's a very different group of artists than the kind of top end, David Werner New York Times uh, art world. And, you know, part of this too, is that if, if things were to just sort of collapse, I think we'd all go away because we're so market dependent. And uh, Jason Farago in the New York Times sort of framed uh, the question this way. He said, we are set to lose lives, careers, but also institutions, practices, traditions. Perhaps it's best now to reflect on what our present isolation teaches us about what art has become and what we want it to look like when we reemerge. And I think that's sort sort of an important question to kind of consider. And I don't know if, if that's something that that you're thinking about um, something I've been thinking about be- a lot before this even happened.
0: <laughs> and, I gotta and- see, William, I just I really hate that question, because to me, it's a, like it sounds. I mean, maybe it's just my own particular precarity, but I read that and it makes me um, angry that somebody is asking me to contemplate my like what I want art to be at the at the end of the day when I'm just trying to pay my bills like I don't
4: like, like. Patty, I not to interrupt you, but I think what I, it's not just what art is, it's what this business is. It's what this industry is. It's how we support ourselves, it's how we make money. It's very, it is, if we just lose the idea that we're not just talking about paintings and drawings and sculpture, we're talking about how we make a living. And it is being threatened right now. We know that like Jonathan's workers are furloughed. There's a skeleton crew. So this isn't just a question that, like, what is art? You know this is a question about how we all make a living in it, so I think it's it's bound up there you can't separate these two it's our,
0: right, our, but our, I would have liked to have seen that teased out into like these are kind of the things that we can do to advocate for these types of changes if we want to see them like the big thing that we're seeing in this whole conversation is that we don't have enough options, and the only options that that I think the only thing that would really give us enough options to move freely is the kind of stimulus that we're seeing certain countries offer and others not. So, you know, the Germany just offer just produced a fifteen a fifty billion dollar package uh, of stimulus for the arts and culture industry alone. We got three hundred million and <laughs> And the Americans for the Arts say that what's needed just right now is 3.6 billion. That's in the but where last you, where you, think, the now? So, like where you think the political where do you
4: think the political will is going to come to make that happen? You know, once we start advocating for that, we're really pushing away from our uh, this this market that we've become so dependent on. As Jonathan pointed out, so much of our institutions are private, privately funded, and so this is a huge shift. And and it, it you know arguing for that doesn't necessarily point us back towards the world from which we came we have to
0: argue for what we need though right like i mean if we look at what's available in small business loans um for the average business for small businesses in new york it's not enough and it doesn't really account for the uh for it doesn't take into account, properly take into account what a gallery or, you know, other arts in, uh, businesses need. So I think we mm-hmm. need to be more specific. I mean, and I think we're seeing that happen. Like we we need uh, different types of support that are being offered.
3: Yes.
4: Yeah, so yeah exactly.
3: New York
0: Times write
3: an article about uh, Heather Hobbs and Nada effort to, you know, mm. gather the support for that rather than glorifying somebody's semi-philanthropic, semi-pragmatic, uh, you know, small, let's repeat that small gesture. Uh, so for for me, the 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 way we also need is that this industry the, the the media industry which is you know art publications and big publications they also in some way should stand behind advocating for survival of the very fiber of the art world and the art system and all it goes is this is completely hijacked on the top media included so we do have a problem and and i think on the other hand you always say that you know that the, the big thing happens to be a runaway train and the small thing is always more flexible so in certain ways you know i i kind of want to end up my part of this as somewhat hopeful that uh you know we will adapt to what is out there at the other end and the ones that will adapt will somehow be able to continue without completely losing their principles and without completely losing their way of survival thank you
4: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you know, you could go to any Bushwick gallery, you know, I don't know, the only thing that's changed is that the artists can't come out and see the shows. I mean, there's, you know, most of these galleries are, you know, if we looked at Tiger Strikes Asteroid, it's, it's an artist run space that is sort of self-funded and has been using Patreon to kind of um, keep the space open. It wasn't dependent on, you know, very wealthy collectors coming in and buying work necessarily. So, I mean, for some parts of the art world, the, the things that are really lost are the public access you know the socialization going to see each other um, and and some things don't change at all you know there weren't sales happening necessarily before this um, you know so I mean it just it, what this has been doing though is making visible a lot of the sort of the contradictions of, of the contemporary art world I mean you know Jason Farrago in his his New York Times piece he really defines what what makes contemporary art unique is that it's been so dependent on global mobility you know he sort of just talks about the fact that artists used to live in two countries you know based in Dubai and working in you know Berlin and that that stopped right now but I I don't think he goes far enough because he doesn't really address you know the kind of class dimensions of of what that having that mobility means and building an art world that can hop from Hong Kong to Miami to New York to L.A. on a kind of continuous circuit that creates your business, Jonathan, and you know that Magda and I participate in on some level, even though we're not doing a lot of fairs. You know,
2: right? Well, uh, fair fair business is not the majority of my business. It used to be, but we started pulling away from that when I saw uh, vulnerability in the model. Um, you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, But I I don't know if you know this, but I'm also the chair of of an international trade organization of art shipping companies called ISAFAT, And uh, I'm speaking with my colleagues on a regular basis. So I'm getting, you know, I've got boots on the ground in in every continent. And I'm getting, you know, some varied reports as to what's going on. For instance, uh, Japan was, um, they felt they had locked it down. And uh, even though the schools are still closed, business is going as usual and now it's reinfected again and it's spiking again uh china started coming back online but reinfection is happening there as well so it's definitely a global thing but the solutions are most likely going to be local and it'll be different everywhere
4: Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: well i think we um maybe uh, on the verge of, uh, wrapping things up at this point. Um, I, I do think, um, Magda, you did a good job of sort of trying to, uh, find some optimism in all of, all of this or, or to, to find hopefulness, which I think is, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty good, I think that's an important thing to do. Um, you know, one thing on my end, um, I'm not sure this is like, so, optimistic because i'm skeptical of it too but i do feel that um i have been hearing a lot of people say like oh you know i hope that people now that they're there are more people at home looking at things online that they're more appreciative of art um typically i think that seems to extend to like netflix and like what kind of things we're streaming online um but I do think that there. Uh, but I do think there are opportunities, and I'm starting to see them where people are working together in ways that they haven't before to kind of figure out, um, you know, just how to survive, um, and how do I, I think smaller arts organizations are working to try and figure out ways to get the money they do have to artists more quickly. Um, and we're going to start to see that soon. Um, So I do think that if and when another disaster happens, we will, at at the very least, be more prepared for it. So that, to me, is a a point of optimism.
2: And maybe we'll listen to the people who have been warning us all along. I mean, I'm sure you guys have probably seen, I I saw for the first time the Bill Gates uh, TED Talk, I'm not paying attention to the other conspiracy theory things, like the fact that the 5G network, the first city that was fully 5G'd was Wuhan, and the fact of the effect of electromagnetic on the cells. Have you heard about that?
0: I have no. not oh. been following
2: that. There was a great, very oh. serious talk given in South Africa about this, and it talks about that the electromagnetic field that blankets our planet was full, first like fully established in the early 20th century, and then you have the Spanish flu. And then microwave technology in the 60s, there was another big outbreak. And now you've got 5G, which is like almost everywhere now. And it started in Wuhan. So now you're
1: oh, saying you our, our
4: greatest, you know, source of like hope right now, the internet connecting us all, is also the cause potentially of the pandemic.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, okay, and and this is, this is a, and here's a little, Here's a, just to add to that a little ethnic edge from this uh, 100% Jewish Ashkenazi guy over here that it's so absolutely Jewish and it's so ironic that an actual plague is going to prevent us all from getting together for Passover. Yeah. Do you get the irony? Do you get the <laughs> yeah. irony? Because oh. oh. the pa- Passover ceremony is all about a plague, the plague on mm-hmm. Egypt. Yeah, it's, it's awesome.
4: Yeah. You know patty to to piggyback on you know an optimistic you know point about this is that it does ask a question can we imagine an art world that maybe isn't dependent or built on sales to some degree to a very privileged few people in society and you know leading up to this um to the pandemic you know i was doing a project where i i i taken work that I've had in storage for many years. Some of it hadn't been unboxed since, you know, 2007, 2015. And I took about 40 works and I offered it to people um, for free. They could take it and store it in their home uh, after signing a contract. And in five years, the work becomes theirs if nobody buys it or, you know. uh, So basically, you know, it, it was a way for me to get some work out into the world that maybe i already made money off of some other sales from other exhibitions. Um, it sort of kicks the can of the problem of that it's still sort of tied to a market down the road, but it, it allowed me to get work to people that otherwise would not have access to like buying my work. And it felt really good. It, it was a very different experience than selling work to a super wealthy collector. And uh, it's, not, it's not a solution to so many of the problems. But if if we had more public funding, if it were cheaper for me to live as an artist and I didn't have to pay for our health care, we didn't have to pay, you know, exorbitant rent in a non-rent-stabilized apartment, you know, I could do more things like this, you know. But I applaud
2: that. I applaud that effort. I think it's a great idea. And I love love the fact that you said, wouldn't it be great if there could be an art world that wasn't dependent on the kind of commerce that it's turned into?
4: I I welcome that. I welcome it. Yeah, and it's not an all-or-nothing scenario. I mean, yeah. you know, countries like Germany have markets and public funding. We've just swung so far in one direction that it's hard to find any kind of balance. And, you know, we could artists could do more projects like this. There would probably be a whole lot more net art out there if artists weren't so getting busy, you know, turning it back into products to sell on the market. I mean, I just saw this tweet from Petra Court, right, where she says, just when I was deemed irrelevant in 2019, uh, to my delight, and I thought I could fade peacefully into oblivion, there's an urgent net art boom in 2020. And, you know, I mean, she's sort of talking about this ironically, but it's, um, it's true. You know, there's like everyone now suddenly is like, hey, let's go look at all that net art and video art that's been available and online for years, but didn't necessarily develop the same kind of market uh, that Nicholas Party you know, or Lowy Howell, uh, you know, developed. Um, so, I don't know, you know, i am so going like to much imagine- more.
3: There's gonna be but... much more looking at the works that are native to the screen, because this is our tool at the moment. We don't have another tool. So, that's one thing, and the other is this, is the fact that Bill's storage project of which we discussed at some point having it bigger and I hope we will try Mm
4: -hmm.
3: is this idea that you have to have ideas that don't fit into what we have Mm
4: -hmm.
3: you cannot with the elbow push in your little band-aid solution into the system that is already rotting you know if you give poor gallery five dollars so they can have to pay five dollar less to participate in the art fair this is not a solution but to actually flip it on its side and say okay here's free art sit on it enjoy it for five years if it sells i get some you get some if it doesn't Mm -hmm. sell Yours, enjoy it for longer. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you have to come up with ideas that just don't fit the the so-called pre-existing condition.
2: My solution may be an that? old idea. My solution yeah. may well, be a, an old idea, which is um, yeah. f- for me specifically, which is that if sorry, William, am I, you, did I cut you off?
4: No, go ahead, please, please.
2: Okay. Um, when, when I started out, uh, over 30 years ago, um, the pie in the sky for me was to be accepted by museums and handle art art transports for them. And I had to get, go through a lot of, uh, um, uh, some, some, you know, rough trial and error before I got to the point where I had enough money for the proper equipment and, uh, raised all the standards. And then, um then the art fair phenomenon happened and the private market just completely blossomed and that's kind of we went where the money was uh all along i was thinking that how how noble and lovely it was when we were just working when we doing coming up with solutions for institutional uh galleries and and museums and uh that's where we started heading back again a couple of years ago and uh that's probably going to be if we're going to stay with the same model of having this sort of rarefied art handling. Uh, the museums might be our last, our last hope if they yeah, and still exist.
4: Jonathan. Yeah. I was thinking about that in your case, if there was more public funding for museums, uh, and acquisitions, it's not like your business would be existentially threatened. In fact, you could kind of, you know, go back to those original ideas of what you were, you formed the company to do to work mm-hmm. with museums and institutions. So it's not like mm-hmm. if, you know, the art fairs died off, I'm sure you would lose business in the short term, but there's still this opportunity and it's not like it, it, it kills what you do. If if more of your money was coming from publicly funded museums. Uh, who right. making Right. Or, mm-hmm,
2: or true altruistic benefactors. And there, there still are some of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, We're getting know. cut off here. Magda saying it's time. Time's up.
4: <laughs> My <laughs> yeah. time well, is up. Yeah. Magda, I just want to say thank you to you and Jonathan. Um, and, you know, before we, we part ways, but thank you for your time today. And it's
2: really nice to talk with both of you.
3: Oh, we I don't have know time if, on your on their hands.
2: I don't <laughs> know if you remember me, Magda. I do. You do? It's nice to see you again.
0: Good to see you. Good to see everybody. I'd like to thank Daddy. you guys too. It was a really great conversation, um, and as per usual, we went over the amount of time <laughs> we prescribed for ourselves and the overtime. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> I think that's usually a good sign. Um, so uh, thanks so much, everyone. We're gonna. Um, we will be back. William and I will be back um, in a couple of weeks to uh, check in with everybody on Explain Me um, and uh, have a little progress report.
4: Yeah, and we should just let people know, Patty, that we may be uh, doing a kind of soft launch. Uh, speaking of survival mode of, um, you know, a Patreon potentially to uh, bring in a little bit of money to keep the podcast going, um, and you know, particularly during this really, really difficult time. Um, so, you know, I, we're not above uh, asking people at this point uh, to maybe contribute something to what we do.
0: Yeah, we're, uh, I think the model of uh, neighbors helping neighbors and uh, the art community helping the art community is one that one to live by.
4: Yeah, all right. Well, thanks, everyone.
0: All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone.
4: Bye.